Thank you for listening to the Restoration City Church Podcast. For more information about our church or to support us financially, please visit rcc.church. Well, hey, good morning. I'm really glad that you are here. If you are just connecting with us as a church, we are at the very beginning of what will be um, an extended series of messages working our way through First uh, Corinthians. We'll take a couple of different breaks along uh, the way, but we're just kind of getting started familiarizing ourselves with what it is uh, that Paul says to the church in Corinth and what it is by extension that God is saying to each one of us. And as we think about this next little section in the letter, I want you to keep keep two things in mind. Uh, Number one, this letter is being written a maximum of six years after Paul first established the church in Corinth, right? Scholars debate exactly when it is that Paul established the church in Corinth. Some will say it's as early as 49 AD. Some will go as late as 52 AD. That's sort of the significant discrepancy because everybody agrees that he either writes this letter in the spring of 54 or the spring of 55 AD. So if you were to go 49 to 55, maximum of six years, it's probably not that long. It's about four years probably after he first establishes the church. So um, it is interesting to me to see that very early on in the history of this church, they have somehow managed to form little cliques. Right? Little factions, little cults of personality, that little divisions have started to work their way into the body of Christ. And that becomes even more surprising when we remember that the church in Corinth was an embattled minority from its very inception. Right? The, read about the establishment of the church in Acts 18 and you don't get past verse 8 before you see the first follower of Jesus in Corinth beaten for his faith. So you would assume that this little embryonic church, this little incipient Jesus-following community would be like closely banded together, that they would be caring for one another, they would be loving one another, they would be growing in Christ together, they would be figuring out how to advance the kingdom of heaven. And yeah, you see a little bit of that scattered throughout the life of the the church, but you also see that they're spending a lot of their time fighting with one another. They're spending a lot of their time arguing and debating. And if you hear me say that and have this sense that maybe we haven't made all that much progress in 2,000 years, I would have to agree with you. All right, so number one, it's very early on in their history that we start to see these divisions and factions form. Number two, Paul addresses those divisions and factions head on as a serious concern, right? This does not just get a passing mention at the end of the letter of like, oh yeah, by the way, if y'all could stop fighting so much, that would be awesome. he, He doesn't just give this a quick head nod as he's headed to the door. As soon as he greets the Corinthians, the section we looked at last week, as soon as he reminds them of the blessings of the gospel, gives them some big picture encouragement, he pivots directly to this issue of division 
in the church. And he's going to come back to it a couple of times over the first four chapters of this letter. And he sees it as something that is worth significant attention. Verse 10, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. When he says, I urge you, the Greek word that he's using there is parakaleo. It is an extremely strong verb, right? You could translate it, I strongly urge you. I exhort you. I appeal to you. It's kind of like our youngest, um, our our six-year-old daughter, um, who has a flair for the dramatic, who every once in a while uh, will use the phrase, dad, I beg of you, dad. Um, I beg of you. Um, And it's always over something trivial, right? It's always over like, hey, dad, could I have like a yogurt cup? I'm like, no, we're going to have dinner in 15 minutes. And she's like, daddy, I beg of you. Could I have yogurt, please? And I'm like, girlfriend, that's too much too fast. Like you got to you got to tone it down there, baby, right? Um, it's got that kind of idea, except what Paul is saying here is deadly serious because he adds in, I urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like this is strong language. This is the kind of language that I might reserve for a husband who's about to walk out on his family and be like, look, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you don't do this. This would have the same kind of urgency that you might feel if you'd been at a party with a friend and you knew maybe she'd had one too many drinks and you see that she's getting ready to leave with this guy that she just met and you know what her convictions are and you pull her aside and you're like, look, I'm just, I urge you, don't do this. Don't do this. That's Paul's tone here. He is leaning in, but what he is saying to this church and to us is y'all have to stop fighting with each other. In fact, you have to start uniting with each other. Stop fighting and start uniting. And we're going to take that very, very simple idea, and we're going to ask two questions today. Number one, why does Paul care so much? Like, why is this such a big deal for Paul? And number two, what does he want for the Corinthians? What would Paul want for us as a local church in the middle of a hyper-polarized city, in the midst of a hyper-polarized culture. What would Paul want for us? So uh, we're going to get started with why Paul cares so much. And the first answer in some ways um, is the really big one, but it also might feel like a bit of a cop-out because I would like to argue that Paul cares because Jesus cares, right? You go back to Jesus's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he's arrested, the night before he gives his life for the sin of the world, and he prays this in John 17. I pray not only for these, meaning not just for my immediate followers, not just for my disciples and apostles, but I'm also going to pray for those who believe in me through their word. Right? So if you're a Christian, you're included in this. This is what Jesus was praying over your life and over my life and over our lives the night before he goes to the cross. He says, Father, may they all be one as you are in me and I am in you. There's a spiritual unity to the church. 
may they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. It is as if Jesus knows, number one, how hard it is going to be to unite the church. And number two, if we could do it, it would literally change the world. Right? I want you to imagine the difference it would make in our world today if the church of Jesus Christ was able to unite around the things that God has made plain in his word. And I don't mean that we would just sporadically have some unity events where we do some joint services and are like, oh, we'd like to recognize four different congregations in the room. That's awesome. That's great. But that's not what Jesus is praying for before he goes to the cross. I certainly don't mean that we would unite as a voting block, right? That's far too small. What if we were to unite as a force for good in the world? Because just so you know where I stand on a couple of things, I genuinely believe that if you name almost any problem out there, and I kind of want to say like any problem out there, but I'll hedge my bets a little bit, almost any problem out there, then the church of Jesus has the greatest potential to solve it. I'll just give you one example, right? There is a homelessness crisis in our city. Right? There is a crisis of homeless persons living inside the Beltway. We all know it. And the question is, who do you think is best positioned to make a difference in addressing that problem? Like, where, where do you want to put your bet? The, the D.C. government? Right? You're like, well, no, that doesn't sound good. Oh, so, so, so Congress? What about all of the gospel-preaching churches in this city? That's where I'd put my money. That's where I'd be like, man, you want to do something? That, that seems like the group of people that should be able to make a difference. And i got to be honest with you. I think we could do it. It wouldn't be like, you know, snap of a fingers kind of thing. Homelessness is not an easy problem to solve. But if all of the gospel preaching churches in this city got together and said, man, we want to do something about that problem, I think we would make more headway than anything else that is out there in the face of the earth today. And I think most of us agree with that conceptually, but if you've been around the church for a while, you're like, yeah, man, that sounds good. That preaches good. It just never happens. Like, it just doesn't work that way. Right? We recognize it's our job, but then we sit back and critique government agencies, and other nonprofits who are doing the work that God gave to his church. And we sometimes have the audacity to sit back and watch the pitch sail by and then critique those who are actually willing to step up to the plate. Right, look, I, I genuinely believe that if the church did half of what God called us to do, the government could stop doing half of what they can't afford to do. Right? But we don't like that. That makes us uncomfortable. Right? So we just kind of sit back and we're like, well, somebody else will deal with that. And then we just lob critiques at what, how other people are doing the job that God gave us. Where he was like, the widows and the orphans, care for them. The poor, lift them up. The disenfranchised, fight for justice. Jesus understands if we could just row together in the same direction, we would make a huge difference in the world. Yet we so often don't do it. 
So Paul cares because Jesus does. Paul also cares because he knows that in the Corinthian church, in the first six years, secondary things have somehow become primary things. Look at verse 11. This is where the letter gets really interesting and almost comical. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people. So Chloe's people are a little concerned about what's going on, that there is rivalry among you. We know for sure that by the time Paul writes this letter, there were several different house churches in Corinth. None of them were particularly large, and it wouldn't have looked anything like our modern version of church, but there were a number of different house churches, and it seems like they have started to jockey for position. Right? They've started to argue about things like whose church is better, whose church is doing it right, whose church should you transfer to, which one is the best, right? Questions that we never debate in our world anymore, but things that they were stumbling with back then. Seems like some of their differences were based on the personality of leaders. There were some doctrinal differences. There was definitely a strong racial component, primarily at that time between Jew and Gentile. There were differences of class. There were all kinds of different things that were starting to divide the church of Jesus, the same things that divide the church of Jesus today. But it's done it to the point where Paul describes Christians as rivals to each other. Rivals meaning like, Auburn, Alabama stuff for those of you that grew up in the South and follow college football. For those of you that are from the North, Yankees and Red Sox kind of stuff, right? Those are my two sports analogies for the month, so I'm going to move on. But you know what I mean when I say rivalries, right? You, you know what that Iron Bowl looks like right after Thanksgiving? You know the intensity of that. Some of you went to Duke or UNC. Y'all invented rivalries, right? You understand what that looks like. And he's like, why do the churches feel that way? Why, why have you come to see each other as competition? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. And, and, and what he knows is that the reason that started to happen is because they are worried about things that are not even on Paul's radar screen. Right? Look at verse 14 with me. This, this is going to mess with your doctrine of Scripture a little bit, so you got to pay attention here. Verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Right? I'm glad I didn't do any baptisms, you know, uh, except for those two, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. By the way, we believe Paul did not write this with his own hand. We think that's what Sosthenes was doing here. He's like dictating this letter to Sosthenes. And I think what happens at the end of that sentence is Sosthenes looks at him and he gives him a sort of like, dude, that's not true. Like, I, like no. Right? Like, I, I think he kind of calls time out and he's like, hey, what about Stephanus? Remember? The whole house. And Paul keeps going. He's like, oh, right. Good point. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I feel he's like glaring at Sosthenes right now. He's like, beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. He's like, I don't know. And if you read that, you're like, excuse me, hang on. We can talk about unity in a minute. Can we talk about the Bible for a second? Because Paul seems confused. And you stand up here about every third week and you're like, this is the word of God. And it's inspired by God. And it's breathed out by God. And God is the ultimate author of scripture. And it seems like, I'm sorry, is Paul confused? Is God confused? Somebody's confused. Somebody here has no idea how many people Paul baptized. 
you're like, uh, how does that work with inerrancy? Like, I, I, I had some questions. That's a great question. If you're willing to ask questions like that of the scriptures, you're going to get somewhere in your relationship with Jesus. If somebody told you to be afraid of questions like that, man, that is not the case at all. But you got to think your way through it a little bit. Right? Here, here's what I think happens in that moment. Remember last week I said something about, hey, when everybody's writing scripture, it wasn't like Paul was just sitting there in some sort of trance dictating to Sosthenes, and neither one of them have a clue what's going on. There's just like scripture is, is flowing here. The Spirit of God is absolutely superintending the process. But he is working through human hands. And Paul has his little, you know, Crispus and Gaius, no, what about Stephanus moment? And then he adds in this, like, I don't even know if I baptized anyone else. And I think the Spirit of God is sitting up there being like, that's perfect. He literally doesn't even know if he baptized other people. The Spirit of God could have absolutely spoken to Paul and been like, look, I know exactly the number of people you baptized. I know the day that you did it. I know the t-shirt you were wearing. I know the number of hairs on their head. The Holy Spirit of God could have cleaned this up in a heartbeat. And Paul would be like, all right, I actually baptized eight people. My bad. There, there's not an error in the baptismal records of heaven right now where we're like, heaven's like, oh, I don't know. Shoot, I thought you were paying attention. No, my bad. I think the Spirit of God is like, I can't think of a better way to communicate what I'm trying to say than these guys are all tripped out about who baptized who and which personality and who's your pastor and what podcast do you listen to and what's your tribe and what's your whatever. And Paul's like, man, I don't even know who I baptized. And the Spirit's like, that's awesome. I'm going to leave the ambiguity there to highlight the fact that the Corinthian church is so worried about something that Paul really doesn't even bother to remember, right? They've taken secondary things and they've made them primary. And Paul's like, man, we're going to have to fix that. Paul cares because he also knows that rivalry is often about pride and it's about selfish ambition. He knows where this comes from out of the heart of humanity, and he knows that it's not anywhere good. Mark chapter 9, verse 33 through 34, the disciples are taking a walk with Jesus. They're headed to Capernaum, and they came to the city, and it says when he was in the house, this is Jesus, he asked the guys, he's like, hey, what were you arguing about on the way? They don't have a whole lot to say right now. For on the way, they had argued with one another who was the greatest. You know that you are having a strange day when you are walking with the one that you believe is the God of heaven, yet arguing about which one of you is the greatest. Like, that's a weird moment where you're like, yeah, but I seriously, like, yeah, Jesus, water to wine. Okay, we'll give him first place. But like, I think I'm a strong second. Like, that's a weird moment. It's ego and it's insecurity, two sides of the same coin, that in this moment tempt the disciples to become rivals. And it's ego and insecurity, two sides of the same coin, that causes groups of Christians to treat one another as rivals. We just keep going on this theme. Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 38. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to Jesus, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's a strong opener. And he says to them, well, what is it that you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus says to them, you don't know what you 
are asking, right? They are ambitious, not for the sake of the kingdom, but they're ambitious for personal gain. They're consumed with status and ego. And that can so easily happen to us as followers of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 16, now I urge you brothers and sisters to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Avoid them. Why? Such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Paul's like, look, at the end of the day, there's an ego and a selfish ambition that lurks in every single one of our hearts. There's none of us that are free of that. And it manifests itself in countless different ways. But one of the ways it manifests is this need to differentiate, to pick fights, to be the best, to see other Christians as a rival, as competition versus a collaborator. And Paul is like, man, you are so missing it. And the world is missing the benefit of a unified church. You guys can do so much better. And yes, I think he would say the exact same thing to the church in America today. I think he would say, you are so focused on these little differences. Imagine what it would do to the world if you united around what God has made clear in his world, which is ultimately what Paul wants for the Corinthians. And it's what he wants for us. He doesn't just say, stop fighting. He calls them to what I think is this beautiful vision of unity, right? And in doing that, he wants to give them a very clear basis for their unity, right? Go back to verse 12 with me for a minute. What I am saying is this. Here's how they were articulating these rivalries. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. And then he asks the rhetorical question, I'm sorry, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? And that's when he goes into the like, nope, none of you were except you and you and maybe some other people. But um, he goes all the way through and he goes, no, 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 no. What is this whole, I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. I belong to, I belong to Christ. He's using that word intentionally. Remember last week we talked about the church of God in Corinth, the possessive, the fact that Paul wanted the Corinthians to understand that they belong to Jesus. He was setting a little bit of a trap for him last week where he was like, hey, you belong to Jesus. And they're not. They're like, we belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. And then he gets the next couple of verses. And he's like, that's weird because you keep saying that you belong to Apollos. That's weird. You keep saying you belong to Cephas. That's weird. You keep saying you belong to Paul. You keep saying, yeah, 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 Jesus. But like, here's the tribe that I've hooked my star to. Like, here's the stream of the church that I more closely identify with sometimes than I identify with Jesus. And he's like, man, that's not going to work. The basis of Christian unity is not which denomination we're a part of, which leaders we follow, which anything. The basis of our unity is the fact that we and every other saved Christian on the face of planet earth belong to God. That we have been purchased with a price that we've signed the title of our life over to God, and that if we all belong to God, that is the source of the unity that Jesus prays for in John 17. Jesus prays for unity in John 17, and then he goes to the cross the next day to purchase that unity, 
to purchase us and to say, guess what? You are now part of the same spiritual family called the church. We belong to the same God. And he says, look, that's going to become the basis for your unity, right? Which is the theological foundation of all of this. But I also want to be very, very practical this morning because unity doesn't just get lived out in theological foundations. It also gets lived out moment by moment by moment. Right? And, and I don't believe that practically it's enough for us to simply say, oh, I got it. So everybody that says they belong to Jesus, like, you know, we're all in the same thing. And it sounds great, but you're like, isn't it a little bit more complicated than that? And I'd say, yeah, I think it is a little bit more complicated than that. So does Paul. Because the guy who is championing unity right here in 1 Corinthians is the same Paul that writes Galatians chapter 1, verse 9. As we have said before, I now say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received from Paul, a curse be on him. Right? So Paul is not some sort of like kumbaya universalist who's like, oh, yeah, you just say you belong to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. Whatever. We're all just like, whatever. Belong to Jesus. And we'll just like float through life and never pay attention to the fact that sometimes there's false teaching. And never pay attention to the fact that there are wolves that come in to lead the sheep astray and just be like, well, belong to Jesus. It's all good. Like, no, wait, he also writes Galatians 1. But the same Paul that writes Galatians 1 also writes Titus 3.9. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. And you're like, wait, okay, so some days we're calling down curses. Other days, can't we just hashtag same team it? And then other days, let's just stop wasting our time on unprofitable and worthless things. Paul, pick a story. Like, what's your deal, man? Which, where, which Paul do we end up agreeing with here? And I think the answer, obviously, is that we agree with all of the different things that we see from Paul. We just need to learn how to apply them. Right, so, so some of you have probably heard me do this before, uh, but if not, this is really, really helpful, really, really important. This is the way I was taught it um, a couple years ago, years ago at this point, not a couple, um, a lot of years ago um, at this point. I want you to think about Christian theology in terms of three different buckets, right? Bucket one, we're going to call dogma. This is the stuff that if you don't agree on, that if you're teaching contrary to this, Paul's like, call down curses on you. You're not going to be a follower of Jesus, right? This is going to be the stuff that we hold most dear because we believe it's what's foundational to being a Christian. It's things like the Trinity. It's things like the divinity of Christ, right? It's things like the exclusivity of Christ, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father, right? It's going to be things like substitutionary atonement, as maybe not the full encapsulation of the gospel, but as a necessary component of the gospel. It's going to be the things that define Christianity. And there are people that claim the name of Jesus that do not agree on bucket one things. And those would be the places where we'd say, man, I'm sorry, but we're not following the same God. Right? Bucket two is what we're going to call doctrinal stuff. Right? These are things that are really, really important. And there's things that you have to have some clarity on to be a cohesive local church, right? It's going to be things like baptism. 
Right? This is how we understand it. This is how we do it. We do it by immersion after conversion. Right? It's going to be things like the Lord's Supper. How do you understand that theologically? Who can participate in it? It's going to be things like spiritual gifts that will come up a lot during this study of 1 Corinthians, particularly things around like tongues and healing and just kind of like how do you exercise that in the life of a local church. It's going to be things like the role of women. Can women serve as pastors? Can they not? All those kind of things that people like to talk about. And a lot of my job around here is to say, hey, all of those things and more are important questions. I'm not minimizing them, but those are bucket two kind of questions. Meaning followers of Jesus who are in the same place on bucket one can end up in very different places on bucket two. And that is totally Fine. That is not a reason for us to disassociate or be like, ooh, they're not following the same God or something. It's like they just have different understanding of bucket two things. Then there's the third bucket, which I'm just going to call opinion, right? Um, some of those things are like end times. Like, any, I mean, man, yeah, I think I can say anybody that feels like they've got 100% of their end times theology nailed down to the point where they want to impose that on every other Christian has a way overinflated view of themselves as a theologian, right? Bucket one, Jesus is coming back. Bucket three, yeah, um, <laughs> Jesus is coming back, right? And I have thoughts and opinions. We can talk about all that kind of stuff. But man, that means that there are going to be people in this church that have very different views about how all the end time stuff is going to play out. And I'm like, great, that's not even a problem we're trying to solve. All right, do it on the other end of redemptive history. Some of you are going to be really strongly committed to like, it's a six day literal creation. Some of you are like, I don't know about that. I'm not sure. In fact, I think that's not true. I'm like, okay. I'm not losing sleep over that one. Again, a lot of my job is to be like, keep bucket three things in bucket three. I'm not, I'm not losing sleep over that one. I'm not losing sleep over multi-site churches. Like, do you, are they good, bad? I mean, I, bucket three, figure it out. Let's like fill one service and then we'll figure it out from there. Right? Do you have drums or not have drums? I mean, just like all this stuff that I'm like, man, this is just like opinion. And we're going to disagree and we're going to disagree within a local church and it's going to be totally fine. So yes, the basis of our unity is that we belong to Jesus. We will be able to live that out if we can understand bucket one, bucket two, bucket three, and keep the right things in the right place. Right? Paul also sort of hints at one of the characteristics of unity. Right? The basis of our unity is the fact that we belong to Jesus. One of the characteristics of a united church is that we move from just tolerating differences to welcoming differences as a sign of strength. Right? That we get to the point of saying, look, we are not all members of the same political party. Right? We are not all going to choose to send our kids to the same kind of school. Some of you are going to go to public schools, private schools, home school, hybrid model schools. That's okay. We don't all have the same educational background. We don't want to be just like a master's degree required kind of church or a bachelor's degree required kind of church. We want to say, look, we've got people with PhDs and GEDs and people that are still in high school. Right? We want to be the kind of church that says, look, there's all kinds of different income levels in the room. There's all kinds of different races, ethnicities, nationalities inside the room. 
We don't all eat the same food. We don't all listen to the same music. We don't all dress the same way. We don't all do the same things on Friday night. We're not all in the same stage of life. Some of us are young and energetic, and you don't even need coffee before church, and that's brilliant, and I don't understand that. Um, And some of us are old, and we guzzle coffee so that we can do our job on a Sunday morning. Some of you are young and coffee addicts, and I'll let you and Jesus work that one out. Right? We're not all on the same stage. And we don't have to pretend that we are. There's an incredible strength in the diversity that's in the room. So here's the thing. Our world wants to figure out how to unite around all these difference, differences. And we can't seem to do it. Because the world can't seem to find a common foundation. But we can if we say, man, it's enough for me if we just belong to Jesus. And I'm just going to end with one practical step towards unity. We're going to come back to verse 17 next week, but I want to include it in this week's talk and next week. Because Paul says in 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach. The part that we're going to talk about next week is not with eloquent wisdom so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Um, But what Paul is sort of hinting at here is one of the things he did to help bring about a unified church is he was actively engaged in the work that God had given him to do. Right? I think sometimes we believe that unity is going to come around through forums and discussion groups and focus groups and conversation. And I'm all for that. Like dialogue is a really, really good thing. And a really healthy church is able to have robust dialogue around the things that we don't agree about. I'm all for that. But at the end of the day, the unity that we long for isn't going to come just through a series of really good coffee meetings. It's going to come as we each wrestle with our personal role to play in the redemptive work that God is doing in Washington, D.C., right here, right now. And we figure out, here's what God is asking me to do during my time in D.C., and I am going to make my contribution. If it's your contribution is preaching, then come on and preach. If your contribution is helping disciple the next generation, then come on and serve in RCC Kids. If you're like, man, my heart beats to go reach college students. There's a lot of them here in the district. Let's go reach them. If you're like, man, I want to do premarital counseling, then do that. You're like, man, our marriage was in the, about to fall apart and somebody came alongside us and put the whole thing back together again. I want to do that for other people. Then would you do that for other people in our church? You have a contribution to make. And we're not going to get to unity by everybody just sitting around and being like, all right, let's just talk about it one more time. It's when we all roll up our sleeves and we're like, hey, I got a job to do. Not just on the RCC org chart, but on the kingdom of God org chart. You're like, I have a contribution to make. I have a thing to do. I'm going to get out there and do what God called me to do. And somehow, as we are all following the God that we belong to, we start to look around and be like, huh, look at this. We're rowing in the same direction. Look at this. We're starting to make a greater impact on the world. Hey, look at this. You don't vote the way I do. You don't look like I do. You don't, oh my goodness, it's happening. It's happening because we're pursuing something greater and bigger than ourselves. That's what God's asking us to do. That's what God's inviting us to do. Right? The church has spent hundreds of years balkanizing itself into all kinds of different factions and denominations and streams and this click and this series of conferences and this and this and this. And I'll just tell you straight up, my prayer for this church is that this becomes a place where some of those different streams are able to reconnect. 
and say, hey, we don't all have the same background. Hey, we don't all think the same way, vote the same way, all the same way things. We don't even all have the same understanding on bucket three issues. We're okay with that because we're really focused on bucket one and we're leaning into bucket two. But what we really want to do is advance the kingdom of heaven here on earth. I'd love to be a part of that. It's probably a little messy, but I think it'd be fun. Father, would you help us? Oh, God, I feel like we miss out on so much of what you dream of for the church. Thank you for listening to the Restoration City Church Podcast. For more information about our church or to support us financially, please visit rcc.church.